very much. Um, first of all, thanks so much for the organisers. It's wonderful to have a room so full of people who have a similar outlook, I think, on, on a lot of issues. Um, I guess in terms of the structure of the day, we may, we may characterise the sessions as, as being empirical and then theoretical and then empirical and now I'm going to take it back in a theoretical direction so there's a health warning for you from the start um, this presentation brings together oops this presentation brings together the work of my colleague uh, Deirdre Conlon who works in Emerson College Boston and myself we both completed PhDs in 2007 and um, we're interested in applying a theoretical concept, a theoretical approach, which is called governmentality. Um, it's a concept that was forwarded by a philosopher and historian, Michael Foucault, a French uh, uh, philosopher in the 70s. And we think it's useful for understanding what goes on in immigration detention facilities. Um, it gives us an insight into, or a way to understand in a, in a richer way the ways in which asylum seekers are subjected in detention. Okay. So the structure of the presentation. First of all, I'll give you some background information on, uh, first of all, direct provision accommodation in Ireland, which was a subject of Deirdre's PhD. And then detention in the UK, which is, was part of my PhD, a quarter of my PhD, I spent looking at detention practices in the UK. Then I'll uh, talk about governmentality, this concept, and take it as, as slowly as I can. A, a brief theoretical background. And then we, we identify three what we call technologies of citizenship three processes by which um, asylum seekers are encouraged to understand themselves differently in detention. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about that under that heading, governmentality. For those of you who are unfamiliar with that term, it, it means governing the mentality of others. So it's not governmentality, it's governmentality. The ways in which people's mentalities are governed. We are saying that not only are asylum seekers subjected to forceful and coercive means of subjection within detention centres, they are also subjected to forms of mental governance. Okay, we'll, go, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more. Okay, so direct provision in Ireland. Um, Ireland has a similar system to the English system, which is uh, focused on dispersal. There are 54 accommodation centres in Ireland, and they're what's termed uh, semi-secure. So um, the people in these accommodation centres are required to sign in daily. They eat at scheduled times. But other than that, they're nominally free, so they can have visitors. Um, and they can leave these centres. Nevertheless, there are prohibitions on employment. There are restrictions on their education. And there's an equivalent to £2.30 per day subsistence for them. Um, they're also highly isolated in, in often very uh, remote rural locations. So, coming back to one of the earlier papers, I guess the question is, can we talk about this as detention? In this paper, we treat it as detention. Okay. Um, the middle column of the, of the top table shows that the number of asylum applications to Ireland uh, peaked in 2002, but the number of people in direct provision the third column in the table actually peaked in 2008. So we have this familiar story of backlog. Okay. And the bottom table, which you may or may not be able to see, um, 
it just illustrates that most of the people that are in these direct, uh, direct provision accommodation centres have been there for over three years. Again, illustrating this backlog effect. A total of 6,674 in 2009 were in these direct, direct provision facilities in Ireland. Okay, so that's one empirical site. The other drawing on my own PhD research is the detention estate in the UK. I did uh, research in Campsfield Detention Centre. Um, I explore this more fully in another paper, Governmental Mobility uh, in Political Geography, if you're interested. One of the characteristics of the detention estate in the UK that I picked up on in my research um, was the movement of detainees between the different detention centres, which has become much more frequent and is uh, very uh, disruptive in terms of continuity of legal aid, especially, but also emotionally. Uh, so I have some figures on that. In 2004-2005, the parliamentary question was asked, how many movements? Now, the detention estate had a capacity of 2,500 in 2005, and the answer came back, 54,670 movements between the different detention centres. Another question asked, how much does it cost? £119.50 per move to move them all. So it equates to about £6.5 million pounds that was spent just moving people around the detention estate. So in my paper I explore why and, the, and some of the consequences. Another question that was asked towards the start of the day was about um, periods, maximum legal periods of detention. This is from Schinkel, 2009, and his uh, full references in at the bottom of my paper. I think we're going to circulate those. Um, and he gives this, uh, this information in, the, in, in his paper, different um, maximum lengths of incarceration. And I think this is 2009, things are already changing, and you may well know different things than what's illustrated there. But it just gives you an impression that, or it just conveys the fact that the Netherlands and the United Kingdom stand out, really, as not having any legal limits on maximum detention periods. So those are the two empirical sites. Okay, um, so on to governmentality. Foucault uh, defined governmentality as the conduct of conduct, that is, an ability among authorities to determine how free and volitional choice is used. The determination of free and volitional behaviour. So there's an immediate contradiction. It's on the one hand determined, but on the other hand free. So it's either by limiting possible actions or by programming the interests, desires and aspirations of subjects. So it's not about overriding interests, not about coercion, it's actually about programming self-understandings and desires. So it's a much more um, insipid form of power. It's about the relationship of self to self. <coughs> In this context, it's about educating migrants to assess themselves in specific terms, laying the ground rules that will produce docile and governable citizens, politeness, self-expression, respect for others. These are the sorts of values that detention at least seeks to, and I leave room for resistance to this, 
that seeks to instill within uh, the migrant population. So these are, these are traits that are produced, they're not imposed. The objective, and that's because the objective is not to secure immediate uh, conformity, but to ensure that conformity will continue once freedom is granted, once people are released. People will still behave in these appropriate ways. They'll still use their freedom in acceptable ways. So it works with freedom. This form of power, this governmentality works with freedom. The opposition, freedom, non-freedom isn't particularly useful here. The form of power is more interested in how acceptable uses of freedom are programmed. If successful, these forms of power will bring about a desire in their subjects to act appropriately. So it's much more insipid than the talks of power that we've been talking about so far. That's not to say that it's one form versus the other. Our argument is that force, coercion, manipulation all go on as well, but this is an additional means of subjugation within detention estates. So governmentality studies has a stronger emphasis on how. How is it that people are programmed? Through what specific practices does this programming occur? And that's what we mean by technologies, these three technologies. So we've distilled three technologies from our work in order to describe how migrants, how authorities seek to program migrants. They're not always successful, and I think that's really important. Methods. So Deirdre conducted 25 semi-structured interviews with female asylum seekers in a direct provision centres in Ireland, and I conducted 13 interviews. This was one of four sites for my PhD. With, uh, it was Campsfield Detention Centre near here, with former detainees, employees at the centre, and activists. And Campsfield is an all-male facility. Okay, so just a brief note on methods. Okay, so what are these techniques that seek to produce particular relationships of self-to-self -self within migrant populations? The first, um, these, this is an extract from an orientation booklet that migrants receive upon entering um, the direct provision accommodation in Ireland. And implicit in there are particular ways of conducting oneself that are acceptable and appropriate. And these orientation booklets seek to establish these in the migrant populations. There are a number of small organisations and you are welcome to join such groups. Immediately an invitation not only to be subject to this power but also to become part of the authority that, um, that exerts this same power. A primary aim of residence associations is to ensure estates, roads and green areas are kept tidy. It's, it, it's highly condescending as well though. And that, letter, and that litter, rubbish, loitering and general nuisance activities are prevented. For example, don't leave litter in your front or back garden or lawn. Keep your accommodation tidy and avoid unsightly objects such as broken down vehicles. So it is condescending, but it's also inviting the asylum seekers to take these values on as their own. To begin, what it does is it paints a picture of what a good migrant would do and invites the asylum seeker to take that on as, as their, their own way of assessing themselves and their own behaviour. Okay, another extract from the orientation booklets. Uh, while residing in residential area is respectful to other residents to keep the noise level, 
to a minimum. Being respectful of other people in your living environment leads to a happy and more pleasant environment. So it's really condescending. Constant loud noise early in the morning or late at night is considered to be disturbing the peace. can therefore cause residents to feel disrespected and resentful. So the good migrant isn't disrespectful. It isn't. The good migrant isn't resentful. That's really reasonable stuff. The invitation is, let's try, let's um, aspire to be a good migrant in those terms. Second technology, which at second specific practice through which um, particular relationship of self to self is um, put forward. Classes, both in the uh, detention centre and in the direct provision, there are classes available to the detainees. And these are not just technical classes, there are some computer classes, some language classes, but there's also art and music classes, means of self-expression. Um, and we have a number of reasons to be wary and, and sceptical about these classes. I'll, I'll just read from the paper here. A number of authors have noted that these releases and freedoms can have the effect of appropriating more of the individual than the individual had intended to give away. Subjects of such false freedom this is a quote from a governmentality theorist, would produce the ends of government by fulfilling themselves rather than merely being obedient. In one sense, the class coordinator is demanding that the detainee makes visible everything of themselves, lay bare their inner thoughts to the compulsory visibility of the penal institution. This is, what, this is one of the class uh, coordinators describing these classes. The classes are nice and light, and they're set apart from the rest of the building, which is nice because it's nice and quiet. Uses nice four times. Usually we had an inspection, uh, actually we had an inspection about three years ago by the prison inspectors, and they referred to it as a little oasis, which was nice. People actually come over here and sit in the corner and listen quietly to the books and things. We have audio books or do a language course, and it's just a chance to get away from everyone else because there are so many people here. Underneath that discourse, um, the fact that there is a free space created or a free space created also creates the opportunity to look at how these detainees use, choose to use the freedom that's given to them. So they're actually watched in these spaces to see whether or not they use this freedom appropriately. It's almost like a dry run. Access and encouragement to participate in creative arts classes for asylum seekers, whether in accommodation centres or detention centres, can also be seen to illustrate what Salter describes as a confessionary complex. For those of you familiar with Foucault, he also talked about confessionary ideas. This idea follows from Foucault's suggestion outlined in the, hi the history of sexuality that over time confession was prized from exclusive use in religious spheres and has become deeply ingrained in all facets of individual life as well as throughout society. For asylum seekers, classes where self-expression is encouraged provide a private space where they can count, recount the traumas and conflicts they have experienced. In this process, they enact and reenact practices such as vigilant self-examination and the discursive rendition of daily life. In other words, acts of confession, which originated in monasteries, spilled over into Christian society and now infused secular society. These scrutinising practices are not merely a way to produce one's own truth, one's sub subjectivities and asylum seeker. In addition, they become a benchmark against which other asylum seekers and their claims and measures 
So we have serious reservations about what these classes are for, how they're used. Obviously, in some situations, they're good, but they, you know, they, they, they fulfil a, a, a dual function, I think. There's a paradox within the provision of these classes. Finally, notebooks. Another technology. <coughs> um, the reason for notebooks um, is quite simple. These notebooks are company detained asylum seekers around the detention estate because they keep getting moved. And what the notebooks do is tell them how they can represent themselves at bail hearings because they keep getting moved away from their lawyers and away from other networks of support. So the notebooks are something that's come from civil society organisations, NGOs, for example, Bail for Immigration Detainees. They've written these notebooks as a way to empower the detainees in their care. And the detainees take these notebooks with them around the, around the country. This is one of uh, the volunteers at Bail for Immigration Detainees talking about the notebooks. We go into Campsfield from bid and we do a whole morning of legal advice and we go in every month to do a workshop with whoever wants to come. It may be 20 or 30 people to explain to them the process of doing their own bail hearing. We have so many clients. So BID has devised a system we call the notebooks, which explains to people the process of bail and how they can run their own bail hearing. I'm running out of time, so I'll just skip to the bottom. They don't have a barrister. They can go into the court on their own and represent themselves, and it's been quite successful. I'll just read from the paper one last time. As an organised strategy of resistance to the disorientating experience of detention, the voicelessness that detainees often experience and the increasingly frequent movement of detainees from place to place, the notebooks promise to empower the detainees. However, we suggest that this self-representation must be viewed as empowerment only from a particular position. In fact, it might be argued that this form of empowerment delivers more responsibility to detainees renders them more exposed to institutional demands, ameliorates the responsibilities of institutions themselves to provide representatives, and above all, seeks to produce an entrepreneurial detainee who must speak in the language of his captors and must demonstrate to them in their own terms why the detainee is suitable to be heard. So again, we've got some reservations. Some artwork. Um, 1996, uh, Christoph Wodochko called this the port parole. It's a device, oh, I'll read you the, I'll read you the uh, description. This object encircles the jaw. This is, to, this is to illustrate this point about the notebooks. This object encircles the jaw with a small video monitor and loudspeakers placed directly over the wearer's mouth, showing the lips moving in sync to the pre-recorded narrative. It is designed to replace the hesitations and fearful silence of an Im immigrant's personal story with a fully formed version of the immigrant's background narrative. It functions both as a, as a conduit of one's voice and image as well as a gag that blocks the mouth and prevents from speaking. So there's this dual function that faces some civil society organisations that on the one hand are really helpful, they're emancipatory, but on the other hand they reproduce systems of subjugation at the same time. It's a tension which I think is faced by a lot of civil society organisations. And I think that captures it really well. Okay, so conclusions. We'd like to argue that there are, there's more than one form of power operative in detention centres. There's, of course, this force, of course, there's manipulation. But on top of that, there's governmental power. 
there are uh, practices, technologies that seek to influence the way in which asylum seekers view themselves. Sites where immigrants are held are therefore sites for the dissemination of specific values, specific ways of thinking and acting, specific ways of conducting oneself. And the question, which I do think is a really important one I've not managed to deal with here, how is that resisted within detention centres? How is that particular form of power resisted within detention centres? My best answer is probably pure silence on the part of the detainee, but I'll leave that to you.